Nothing can save us that is possible. How could the eternal do a temporary act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. W.H. Auden And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Luke chapter 1, verses 35 and 37. Welcome to Nightlight. In just a moment, we'll return to that strange opening phrase that is the title of this message. But for the moment, let's recall some facts about this season that precedes the Christmas holidays we call Advent a season most of us, unless we are from a sacramental church culture, know very little about. Listen to this description of what Advent is and try to listen carefully. Try to grasp what it's saying from Neil Alexander's article, A Sacred Time Intention. Is Advent a preparatory fast to ready us for the liturgical commemoration of the historical birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Or is Advent a season unto itself? Is it a sacrament of the end of time begun in the Incarnation and still waiting on its final consummation at the close of the present age? Is the content of Advent's proclamation centered in end times dread, judgment, and condemnation? Or in time's hope, expectation, and promise? Is Advent really the beginning of the annual cycle, or does Advent bring the year to a conclusion? The fact is that each of these either-ors are really both ends. We cannot eliminate one or the other, but must hold them both in tension. Shaped by darkness, and light, dread and hope, judgment and grace, second and first comings, terror and promise, end and beginning. Imagine a time when not only are there no lights in the streets, there are no lights in the world, for the most part. Injustice and cruelty are the norm. Advent was seen as the gross darkness of the world invaded by the light of heaven through the coming manger. The glory of the Incarnation was set against the backdrop of this gross darkness, and the contrast was dramatically impacting on the early worshipers who had lived in that darkness. Fleming Rutledge says, Advent teaches us to delay Christmas in order to experience Christmas in its true power when it finally comes. Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. The true and authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness but straight at it 
Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. I'm recording this message weeks before the holiday season begins. Many striking events will most likely have occurred in the interim between now and when you hear this. We record the end of the year messages as well as the January one early so that the people who prepare the recordings can be with their families for the holidays uninterrupted by having to deal with our recording schedules. So here I am in early September recording a Christmas message. But as you know by now, I'm not very good at seasonal messages. Not that I don't love certain aspects of each season. I do. But I've always had a great and ever-growing sense of urgency about the times we live in now And that has never allowed me to seemingly waste our once-a-month hour together on mere holiday commemorations. The Christmas season has then been especially challenging for me because I do love all the good that comes through the true Christmas celebrations. When it reaches into the pain and darkness and the poverty and the loneliness and brings its message of hope and healing, I'm all for it even when it's just a matter of fun and togetherness, without focusing on painful things like I just mentioned, that's a great blessing. But I became slowly paralyzed at the season uh, when it, it progressively became more and more what it has become. But a couple of years ago, I discovered my answer to this dilemma. When I discovered for the first time the treasury of Advent. I'd I'd heard of Advent. I knew about Advent candles. I was even parts of churches sometimes that put up decorations of Advent, which I learned was missing the point. I was struck by the simple phrase when I began to learn about real Advent. Advent begins in the dark. I read a volume of compiled sermons by Fleming Rutledge, titled, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. Her message forever fixed my holiday conflict. After I better understood the historical meaning of Advent, I saw clearly how to use this holiday season prophetically. I no longer felt I had to make a decision between dealing with current realities, then taking time away from those issues, uh, to focus on things that were not real and only spend time and energy on diversions that ultimately began to mean little or nothing. For as we taught last year, Advent was not ever meant to be a mere pre-Christmas frivolity that preceded the bigger Christmas frivolity. Advent was, and still should be, a deep prophetic entering into the pre-dawn darkness that is only extinguished by the light of the Incarnation that we have come to call Christmas. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, and the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising, Isaiah chapter 60. 
We need to restore our understanding of the prophetic nature of Advent. And we need to weave that truth back into our holiday practices in some form or other. Now, that was easier to do in times and places where there was some awareness of the church calendar. Now, sadly, most congregations are so ignorant of any meaning behind the times and seasons that it is a huge task to get any concept across about image and symbol and how the keeping of certain traditions are meant to point to a greater reality behind them. When all we have is basically Easter as a rabbit, Thanksgiving as a turkey, and Christmas as an overloaded credit card, how do we ever consider, much less enter into Advent? It was needful enough for us to renew our understanding in relatively good times. But now, at this time, with many of our brothers and sisters are suffering around the world on a level we have not seen before, Afghanistan, clearly, but also Nigeria, also Haiti, also Mozambique, as well as the ongoing sufferings of the church in various oppressed nations. All that's on the increase. And now the symbols and images of Advent are far more than mere holiday memorials. They are present prophetic signposts, if we know how to read them. But we might be tempted to think that we don't need to hear about all that. We need a break from bad news. Or we need Christmas holidays to be unencumbered with sorrow. We need to be jolly. Well, thinking that way only reveals how truly ignorant we are of the times. Have we allowed the shallowness of our American culture to cause us to take offense at being interrupted in our holidays by the invasion of the troubles of the world? Kind of like, don't bother us with the world's suffering. Can't you see we're celebrating the birthday of the Savior of the world? Or is it just one more reminder that we are truly not celebrating the Savior of the world? We're not celebrating His coming. We just engage in the paganism of the Babylonian winter holiday season with a few Christian trappings mixed in. Jesus himself warns those who see the signs of weather in the skies, but who refuse to read the signs of the times, Matthew chapter 16. The passing of each year draws us closer to the passing of this age. We are headed somewhere. History is not a mere cycle or circular replay of past events, perennially playing out again and again. It's evidently a very common human self-deception, though, to think that way, because Peter wrote 2,000 years ago, quote, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our forefathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Events are birth pangs. Birth pangs increase in number and intensity until there is a birth. Our small point of view may misapprehend the weaving together of those events and their movement forward to some ultimate cataclysm, but the events of history are birth pangs leading to an eventual birthing, and that birthing is going to transform everything. 
It would be sadly ironic, though, for us to become engrossed in the shadow of the holiday parable of both Advent and Christmas, while completely ignoring and missing the substance of that shadow's message. Let us celebrate, yes. Let us be sure to make the celebration align with its full true meaning, though, not deform it into an empty avoidance of reality. I can't eat or drink without thinking of those who can't have food. I don't lie down safely, for now at least, at night in a a warm, safe home with family around me, without being deeply mindful of those who are not only torn from their homes, but whose very family members and loved ones may be torn from them by kidnapping or death. I understand if this becomes too much for us to focus on for very long, and I'm not trying to move us into some sort of mental self-flagellation endurance test. On the contrary, if we refuse to be duped and refuse to be passive and self-indulging, if we embrace our full true identity in Christ and take our rightful place in the armor of God and in prayer and in righteous action, we will be highly motivated to stand and having done all, keep standing. In your family gatherings and meals, call your family around and for at least a few moments enter a family time of prayer where you reach out for another family and share the suffering brought on, on them by the affairs and issues of the current crisis. Make your home a special place for them who may be six, seven thousand miles away, but in reaching out to them, you 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 cover them with your prayers from your home. Find ways to take action beyond prayer, like service or giving, or being present to one who is alone. You can't do all of that, but find what part you can. As I've said before, I'm recording several weeks before Advent, and I don't know what will be happening when you hear this. But let us be sure of this. We are not going to return to, quote, normal. We are never going back to the previous days when shallow, willful ignorance of the true nature of our warfare provided us a deceptively soft place to land. The darkness of pre-dawn Advent was meant to help worshipers reverence the coming light by remembering the depth of that darkness, that that light entered. Now this end of the age darkness we see all around us is calling us to awaken to prepare for the second coming of that light. This advent, more than ever before, we see not as mere shallow calendar events that can rush past us on our way to the next thing. The real darkness is now being experienced in daily life and it should be increasing our cooperation with the spirit of life in birth pangs as those birth pangs awaken a growing cry in all of us, Come, Lord Jesus. Now, that's my introduction. So what does my title mean? Nothing can save us that is possible. A high school teacher would likely offer some clearer alternatives to that wording, like maybe, well, we cannot be saved by anything that appears possible. Or, if he wants to push it, 
a little farther to the direction the statement means it to go. We, we can only be saved by an impossible thing. <clears throat> but I'm borrowing this phrase from the poet W.H. Auden, who wrote it exactly how he meant it to sound. He, he meant it to grate on our ears, to irritate our usually flowing prosaic mind. Nothing can save us that is possible. Well, what comes to mind when you hear that? Usually we want to take a complex statement and make it simple. But in this case, we're doing the opposite. We're taking what we think of as simple and delving into the complexity of it. What comes to my mind, and it may be different for each of us, but what comes to me is that we are in a great, tangled, confused, and increasingly chaotic cauldron as the human race. Jesus refers to it when he says that upon the earth there will be distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear of what is coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. The prophetic scriptures in Revelation 13 paint a picture of it as a monstrous beast rising up out of the troubled sea. There's nothing within our realm of experience that has the power to save us. Nothing can save us that is possible. For me, anyway, rewording this phrase to make it more linguistically palatable makes it less jarring and therefore less effective. It seems to soften the blow of this truth to try to more clearly say it. You could say, well, nothing is possible, uh, nothing that is possible can save us. We might hear the phrase and think, well, that means that we are in a terrible mess and there's nothing in sight that can save us. But our television-trained 30-minute sitcom mindset might then think, but then something will finally show up that will, at the last minute, rise up from among us and save us. It always does, you know. No. Let it hit us one more time. Nothing can save us that is possible. Nothing can save us. No possibility can be located or contrived or imagined that can in any way save us. What does this strange wording mean to communicate? There's an impossibly terrible situation both within each of us and around us, and that individual cauldron within us joins with the cauldron of others to form a boiling horror called the world, and there is no remedy for it in our world. We are utterly hopeless. This is the meaning of the darkness where Advent begins, and it is made up of individuals who are that on a small scale. But we then together combine to make it a hell that is stronger and more terrible corporately. Together we are worse than the sum of its parts. Scripture refers to powers that are at war with God and against us that seek to make this cauldron but they seem to need our energy, 
our cooperation to provide them the resources to make the troubled sea. And we rarely discern what is happening when natural human evil takes a turn and begins to be ruled over by a supernatural element of evil. Most people, even many Christians, just passively sit by and maybe comment on how messed up the world is, quote-unquote, then turn to the sports page. Passive willful ignorance is a great resource for the works of darkness to strike its targets. I do not think most of us believe this. We hear it and we read it many times, don't we? Some reference to the greatness of the human spirit or the power to rise out of the ashes or some other triumphalist statement of human potential in the face of adversity. And there are remarkable examples of that, but they are not the norm, are they? If they were, they would not be cited and celebrated as unusual. Are you beginning to see, if you've not seen before, how easily people can tumble over into corporate cooperation with evil? There are good policemen, for instance, but they can become entangled in some hidden corruption that is not any one policeman's fault, but a groupthink forms. And what was at first a silent loyalty oath not to turn on each other uh, or, or to protect each other becomes a test of loyalty, not to preserve brotherhood, but to hide wrongdoing. Then what was meant for good becomes evil. Evil becomes good. No one person is to blame, and yet all become guilty. We might use a hospital, or a law firm, or a church, or an international ministry, or any other sorts of organization. Certainly, government is an example. We speak of the spirit of a business a gathering, a movement, and somehow in ways subtle and invisible, that spirit which may have begun in good faith is incrementally taken over and manifests its own power. Find some individual who is a part of that group and maybe privately enter a discussion where your concerns about the movement away from integrity in the movement is bothering you, often they will fully honestly agree with you so long as they are alone with you in the conversation but let the group gather and the individual soul becomes lost in the cauldron it it is more than mere group think it's a principality and a power of evil and it can be seen in nearly every dynamic of our society do you see how weak is the tiny veneer that holds our society together we walk on a very thin sheet of ice that barely covers the deep dark beneath. We convince ourselves that it's all stable and can bear up under the weight, but we are now seeing just how amazingly fast, once it begins to unravel, that it can descend into a mess insane asylum. Have you observed how easily individuals bow to a herd mentality, moved by fear? Groupthink is often a product of fear. I know doctors who have completely lost their sense of individual integrity as they abandon their own medical instincts, even based on years of solid experience, because they fear being outside the groupthink, even when the groupthink is manifestly politicized and anti-scientific. In the face of that fear, the frontal lobes no longer function with logic or clear-headed reason, 
simply give vent to the less developed lizard brain. Logic and the good of reason are subjugated to acquiescence, and they may even go so far as to congratulate themselves on being willing to sacrifice their own freedom of thought for the greater good, even while the greater good is showing more and more evidence of a much greater bad. Do you see people giving up volition for immediate assurance, even if there is ample reason not to trust those who have lied to them over and over? Are you getting a glimpse, finally, of how nations of our recent past have fallen to tyranny? Are you no longer taking false comfort in the once common idea that such and such could never happen in America? We've spent all our spiritual and moral capital We've extinguished our borrowing power, both metaphorically and literally. We are breaking apart and sinking nationally. All nations are in various degrees of meltdown. Australia is a petri dish for testing just how far a Western nation will bow to tyranny. And at this writing, they are nothing more or less than an armed police state. Civil liberties are no more. But most folks here don't know that. There's not a free and independent national news source to report it. Just the government propaganda machine. Nothing can save us that is possible. There was a film in 2004 called Crash. Not to be confused, by the way, with a horrible, useless film of the same name produced by Cronenberg in 1996, which I pray you will never bother with. This film crash. The story is set in Los Angeles during the days leading up to Christmas, maybe an accidental advent story. This film traces the life events of 16 different families, people unrelated to each other, yet mysteriously tied together by the way their failings and sorrows and lusts and rages and prejudices and prideful misuse of one another bring them finally together in this huge crash of human sin. Even the one shining light in the film, a young policeman, Hero, whose approaching presence momentarily awakens in the audience some hope for good to come. Even he, finally, at the end, is just another terrible and hopeless story. The message of this film is clear. Nothing that can save us is possible. Now, Crash isn't preachy. In fact, I would say that Christian families need to not watch it if little children are around, young children. But there's no Christian message woven through the script, no evangelistic appeal at the end with an altar call. There's only this, a scene of a nativity display now and then under a dark but snowless sky. It's, after all, Los Angeles, snowless. At the end of the film, we see snow falling on the city as the manger silently speaks. Something not possible, snow in L.A., falling on something far more not possible, God himself entering this planet as a human being, grace coming to the unhealable madhouse. Nothing can save us that is possible, so something impossible has to be our only hope. And 
with God, nothing shall be impossible. But what did Auden mean in his poetic cryptic phrase? Trying to unpack poetry often ruins its message, like when you have to explain the punchline of a joke. But when you place the phrase in its context of the poem, you see a little more clearly. How could the eternal do a temporary act? The infinite become a finite fact. He seems to be asking how God, the eternal, unchanging one, could step into the human cauldron as a finite man. Is this a change in the eternal? Is that an alteration of the one who is unalterable? And is it a temporary event that will be reversed once his purpose is accomplished? Or is it a permanent change if, in fact, it is a change? Nothing can save us that is possible. God has to do the utterly impossible to save us. And we who must die, Auden says, demands a miracle. Often at times, but especially Christmas, lyrics of certain songs would mesmerize me as a boy, send me off into thoughts that made me dizzy. I mean that literally. But sometimes I know that was the Holy Spirit teaching me, but sometimes I would catch glimpses of things too big for me. I could not put them into words, but the encounter would put words into me that would take me years to unpack. Words that were trying to speak of the unspeakable, describe the indescribable, things impossible to accurately formulate not because they were truly impossible, but because they were so far beyond my comprehension that I had to bow in awe rather than just examine it. These lyrics were trying to point to the impossible thing without which we cannot be saved, that impossible thing that had been possible and now is possible. But it seemed the best we could do in our poor, bankrupt, current mindset is to shrink that impossible thing down to a sentimental children's story called Christmas. And I don't mean that to be unkind or critical. I'm grateful for the good that we do draw. But the more I see into the mystery, the more the more cheaply I see we fail to communicate it on a level that the Holy Spirit would be glad to help us learn to communicate. Maybe this is the best we can do so far. To diminish the impossible down to a Christmas pageant. Is that the best we can do? Maybe so. Maybe what I'm trying to grapple with and describe and point us to is something, something so profound and so wonderful that it can only be pursued by you and me as individuals. And when we catch even a small glimpse of it, we then can say with Auden, truly nothing can save us that is possible. One daring song recently tried to address it, written by a lady named Ruth Elaine Schramm and her daughter Selsey Staggers, simply called A Child, A King. 
Listen to these words. A babe in arms is fast asleep, sheltered from harm among the sheep and lambs, the Holy One of whom the angels sing, a child, a king. Deserving of the finest royal robes, he's wrapped with love in simple swaddling clothes, while his guardians spread their golden wings, a child, a king. A tiny child, small and helpless, and yet the king of endless might. The Lord of all sent down to help us, to lead the way to love and light. His ear absorbs, his eyes observe, he cannot speak a single word. And yet omniscient, he knows everything. A child, a king. His fingers curl around his mother's hand. They held the world. They traced the edge of land and sea, now feeling Mary's warmth and covering. A child, a king. I'm totally inadequate to try to express what I'm feeling. I'm struck dumb by it. All I can do is point to it and hope that as you listen, you will turn off your listening device and look with the eyes of your heart to see it. Because we have been so jaded by the commonality and familiarity of these things. His fingers curl around his mother's hand. They held the world. They traced the edge of land and sea. Charles Williams said, The incarnation has forever hallowed the flesh. Unpack that statement. He's hallowed all aspects of the flesh. He's hallowed mother and child love, brother and sister love, friendship love, father-son, father-daughter love, every kind of human, meaningful, true love was hallowed in that moment of the incarnation. And I don't have words to try to express what I'm trying to grapple with here. What is the impossible that must still come and save us is that God would become man. Please think about that statement and the implication of it that God has always had in mind that he and man would become one forever united in love and goodness That is what this is all about. Not Jesus dying and rising so he can take us away to a disembodied heavenly realm where our humanity is half obliterated and where the love and touch and care and warmth and humanness of being human is discarded and replaced by something so alien that we cannot even imagine it, much less taste it. He is in the mother's embrace. 
the father's tenderness, the brother's adventurism, the sister's joy. He is the warmth of friendship, the intoxication of a child's laughter, the full true meaning of the lover's marriage vows, all restored in and by and with him and without any sorrow added to it. All that you found good and loving and wish you still had, he has come to purify and perfect forever with him and restore it to you. What we tend to call sentimentality is in some cases not sentiment at all. It is the whisper of a returning life and love that we thought had been lost forever. That is why he came to seek and to save. He has, and he will. Oh, thank God he's not a jurist seeking to restore law and order, but a father restoring his family. And in Jesus, all of our humanity is forever hallowed. Son of God, Son of Man. Just bathe your brain in these scriptures. He has made known to us his hidden purpose. Such was his will and pleasure determined beforehand in Christ to be put into effect when the time was ripe. Namely, that the universe, all in heaven and on earth, might be brought into unity in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. That's the New English Bible translation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Colossians chapter 1. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, which went out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and purchased for God with your own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, 
and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now in the closing moments that we've got together, I want you to stop with me, if you, unless you're driving, and, and, and focus. You can do it while you're driving. But focus with me on this prayer that I'm about to pray. Father, I pray for every man and woman, every young person who may be listening right now. I pray, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that the eyes of their heart would be flooded with light, that they might begin to comprehend right now on a level they have never comprehended before what it really means that God has become man. What it really means that you have forever hallowed the flesh. What it really means that every longing, every lost relationship, every broken heart, every sense of failure, every sense of of uh, being diminished in any way, has all been swept up by you in your cross. And, and we pray, Father, now, in, in their, their pain, which is a pain that seems to be more poignant this time of year, losses hurt more this time of year, estranged relationships torment more this time of year. The enemy... The enemy would love to make this time of year a time of impending sorrow and anticipated grief. I'm, I'm praying for that reversal to happen right now. Not, it's not really a reversal. It's a return to what was really intended to begin with. This is not a time for sentimentality to turn our losses into griefs. It is a time for our confidence and our faith in who you are and what you have done to rise up and to reclaim whatever has been lost in us and to us. We pray, Father, for the redeeming power of your, of your cross to work in every loss in our lives, every estrangement in our lives, every broken relationship in our lives, every failure, every moral impunity, every, uh, every sin, every tormenting memory. We pray, Father, that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of his shed blood, that we, we would comprehend with all the saints the height, the depth, the breadth, the length. Paul is obviously referring there to the highest heights, the lowest lows, the widest things beyond our reach to the left or to the right. All things 
gathered up in your cross. We pray, Father, that we would know the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, to know the love of Christ that surpasses mere human knowledge in order that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what this Christmas means. That's what the incarnation means. No, we're going to break out of as good as traditions as some of them are. They're tiny, tiny little boxes. We're going to break out of those boxes and we're going to go to the very height and depth and width and length. And Father, I pray that those who listen to those scriptures that we just read, that they would go back and not just listen to them. They would chew on them. They would meditate on them. They would open their spirit to what those verses are saying, that they would read between the lines. They wouldn't need my commentary or anybody else's commentary. They would hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them through those verses of what the height, the depth, the breadth, the length really means. And that they would embrace that, not just for this holiday season, quote-unquote, but that they would move into a whole new realm of revelation that changes the way they move forward through the rest of their journey here. I pray, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you where the incarnation is concerned and where every aspect of the incarnation as it relates to our personal pain, our personal human experience, our personal stories, Lord, please incarnate our whole story till every aspect of it is redeemed. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.